joining us on YouTube. I know we got a few out there. And uh, so tonight we're into our second lesson on Bible basics, and this is where we begin the story of the Bible. And uh, so we're going to, my plan is you have the notes there, and we're just going to work as far, we're not going to work through that whole thing, but we're going to work through as far, or as, as far, as much of it as we can. And um, I don't want to say too much about what I've given to you in the notes, because that's why I gave you those uh, notes. And I just want to think more and talk more about how each of these uh, books of the Bible fit uh, together. And uh, so at least that's, that's our plan for this evening. Yes? Um, there's several hole punchers around here. So there's one in the office if you need to. Yes. It's all set up. I mean, the, the holes are in the right place, ready to go. So let me open us in a word of prayer, and uh, we'll get going. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we have together as we look at uh, our Bibles and see how uh, you have provided your message to us. And help us to always be thankful for the fact that we have your word, your message to us. Everything that you want us to know. Uh, is right here in our Bible, and uh, so we give you thanks for that. And uh, just we uh, just ask your blessing on this time. We pray for a a profitable time, an edifying time, and a good time this evening in Christ's name. Amen. So as we uh, as we think about our our Bibles and we think about the different books in our Bible, one of the things that we need to remember is that uh, our Bible was. God used 40, about 40 different writers over the span of two millennia, just about two millennia, uh, to produce what we have in our Bibles, the 66 books of our Bibles. And nowhere else in history do you find a group of writings like this that are written by different people over that period of time that are as uh, consistent and coherent with each other as the books of the Bible. And so one of the, one of the reasons that we know that that is true is because of inspiration, because while there are multiple human writers, we would say there's one author, one author, and the author is God uh, himself. And, and so when we look at these books, one of the things that is, should be of a concern or interest to us is to see the connectivity, uh, the coherence of how these books of the Bible uh, fit together. And uh, so let's start, and we're going to look at the first section, and we're just going to use, uh, we, last time we talked about how uh, the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Bible structured 
uh, our Bibles, but we're just going to stick with our English Bibles here since we're most familiar with that and we don't want to confuse ourselves at all. And so we're going to start with the law, Torah or the Pentateuch. Uh, either of those three ter terms mean the same thing. So uh, the book of Genesis. And so what, what you see on the screen is basically what you have in your, your handout there. And so in the book of Genesis, what we have is the foundation. It's the foundation of everything. This is where everything uh, begins, the creation of the universe and all in it. Uh, we also have the fall, the fall of man into sin, where man willfully sins against God. Also with the fall, we... Uh, receive the uh, answer to the question, why does man need to be saved? Well, the, the, that is answered with the fall because of man's sin. Uh, we also have the flood that is recorded in the book of Genesis. Uh, Noah, the flood, and the ark. And um, the flood comes about because God punishes man because of his great uh, wickedness. And uh, by the way, the flood shows us man's continual sin. I mean, here you got Adam. You think Adam sins. Man must uh, have learned his lesson, right? <laughs> well, that's not the case. Uh, man uh, continues to sin. And then, of course, we have the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babel. And, and once again, this comes after Noah and the flood. And man, instead of obeying God and filling the earth, they congregate together and they build a tower, a ziggurat, in an effort to make a name for themselves. Not to praise the Lord, not to worship God, not to exalt him, but to make a name for themselves. And so what does God do? God confuses their languages and spreads them out on the earth. And then after you get through the Tower of Babel, you can think of it this way. Think of it like this. Uh, you have um, innocent man in Adam. Was Adam able to perfectly obey God? Answer, no. Adam was not able to do that. Now, then you have men from uh, Adam to Noah. And we ask, well, how did they do? Well, how they did is answered in the flood. God destroyed every single person on the face of the earth except for Noah and his family. That's how they did. So it wasn't just a personal moral weakness of Adam. It was also uh, every man who's ever uh, come after Adam cannot live perfectly before God. And so you have the flood. And then when God institutes uh, a societal type system or a governmental type system with the Tower of Babel, well, what happens? Well, when people get together, it's just a collection of wickedness. And so uh, God judged them there. And so what is God to do next? Well, next we see Abraham. This will pick up in Genesis chapter 12. We see Abraham and God chooses this individual through whom he is going to create a nation. And that nation is going to produce 
God's chosen one, God's Messiah, who will come and be the Savior of the world, the Messiah of Israel. And uh, so you see that in Abraham. So that's point five there on, on your notes, that it's going to be through Abraham and his family that God is going to uh, provide reconciliation for the world. So the, the key verses to think about is Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this is where God chooses Abraham and gives him a promise. We call that the Abrahamic covenant. He promises certain things there. And then in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, um, we have uh, God's promise that the children of Jacob will return to the promised land, the land promised to Abraham. Because remember, at the end of Genesis, the children of Israel are in Egypt. That's where they're at. And so this brings them uh, back to the promised land. Or we see that the, the uh, certainty of them returning to the promised land is there. So how, how does this fit? How does the book of Genesis fit? Well, it's the beginning of beginnings. It's the beginning of everything. The rest of the Bible is based on what we find in the book of Genesis. It answers the question, where did man come from? What is man's purpose? And it even answers the question, what is his destiny? Right? It answers especially the question, what is man's destiny separated from God, apart from God? And so this, uh, this sets the foundation for everything else we have in the Bible. Any, any questions about Genesis? Okay, let's go to Exodus here. Exodus, you see the theme of Exodus is going to be redemption, the, the, that's the one word theme. The longer theme, what I think you have in your notes, is the birth of the nation of Israel through the redemption of the Lord. So the Lord is going to redeem them from the land of Egypt. And so in Exodus, we have Moses. We have the story of his birth and call. We have the exodus from Egypt with the plagues and the Passover, and then we have the law. And in the law, we have three T's, 10 commandments, tablets of stone, and tabernacle, the tabernacle. So Moses, Exodus, and the law. And the key verse here is uh, Exodus 6, chapter 6. I, by the way, these key verses, I just picked out verses that I thought were the key verses. So uh, maybe you pick out a, a better one. Uh, it says in Exodus 6, 6, Therefore I say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So that's the the key verse or the theme verse for the book of Exodus. Now, how does the book of Exodus fit? Well, as we end the book of Genesis, uh, the children of Jacob are in Egypt. They went to Egypt uh, because of a famine in the land. 
And, and Joseph had been sold into slavery, and he had been able to move up in the Egyptian government to essentially the second uh, in command of the Egyptian government. And he provided a sanctuary for uh, his family, the family of Jacob. And the only thing is that sanctuary turns into servitude, turns into a place of slavery. And so as you come into the book of Exodus, the children of Israel are not there in Egypt just for their safety and just for their survival. They are now there as slaves. And so Exodus tells us how God is bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and taking them to the promised land. And while they are leaving Egypt, headed to the promised land, God gives them the Ten Commandments. God gives them his law and says, you as my people, you must behave this way. And they agree to it. They agree to it. It's not a one-way thing. Uh, God says, do you agree to this? And they say, yes, we agree to that. And it's no sooner than after they agreed to it that they broke it. They, as soon as they agree to the covenant, they start breaking uh, the covenant. And um, we are then, at the end of the, of the book of Exodus, we have lots of things that fill in the gaps for us about the tabernacle, the place where God is going to meet the children of Israel. Uh, now we come to Leviticus, and Leviticus isn't, it doesn't fit in historical sequence. If you think of Leviticus like this, I think you're pretty much on track. Leviticus sort of uh, overlays the end of Exodus. It, it's sort of talking about the same kind of stuff. But the key theme or the theme for Leviticus is worship, as in worshiping God and holiness. Those two things go together. Uh, and so for the children of Israel to worship God, they have to be holy. And you can look in your outline and you see the different things that they talk about. Uh, we know that the children of Israel had different offerings and sacrifices that they were commanded to make or that they needed to make for some reason such as uncleanness. Um, so we see that. We see the instructions about the priesthood. We see instructions about purification, so to be clean before the Lord, that enables you to approach the Lord. You have to be clean. You have to be holy. Then we have the feast. There's a description of the feast that uh, Israel was to maintain. And then it has a, a section on the land. Now, most people find reading through the book of Exodus tedious, maybe a little boring. They think it's a little boring. But the key thing to remember about Leviticus is it's telling the children of Israel in detail this is what is necessary for you to come before the Lord. If you want to come to the tabernacle and worship the Lord, these things are necessary for you to do. Now, I think 
a good verse that might be the key verse here is chapter 1, verse 2. It says this, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herds, a herd or the flock. And the key thing is there, bringing an offering before the Lord. He's getting ready to tell them about the instructions for doing that. Then uh, chapter 10, verse 3 says this, and Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near to me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. So uh, there we have the instructions. If you're going to come before God and you're going to worship God, you're going to offer him offerings, you must be holy. And so Leviticus fits right in with Exodus. Really, the latter part of Exodus is sort of just overlays that. And, and now we come to Numbers, the book of Numbers. And here the theme is wandering in uh, the wilderness. And so the children of Israel in the book of Exodus, they have been at uh, Mount Sinai. That's where they're at. That's where we pick them up. They have left Egypt. They have escaped from Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and now they are in the Sinai Peninsula at Mount Sinai. And in, in the first part of Numbers, we have their preparation for their journey to uh, the Promised Land. And, and so they're organized and they're arranged. And, and now is really when they start to become a formal nation. There's structure and order to the people. And uh, they're told how to march. They're told how to set up camp. All that stuff happens in the first 10 uh, chapters. Um, then we see uh, the provisions that God gives them on the way to the promised land. So anybody remember any of the provisions? Manna? Quail? water. So the Lord provides all those things and, and we see how he does it uh, here in chapter 11 and 13. Uh, but then they get to really the place where it's time to do a reconnaissance of the land. It's time to gain intelligence about how are we the children of Israel going to enter the land and they send out the spies. You remember that? They send out the spies and the spies come back and they say Oh, it was great. Everything just looked outstanding. But the people who live there are fierce. We can't handle them. We can't handle them. So 10 of the spies said, we, we, it is our opinion that you should not go into the land. And of course, two of the spies, remember their names? Joshua and Caleb, they said we can go in. The Lord will give them into our hands. Uh, and so the, the people, the children of Israel refuse to enter the land. And so they're punished. God punishes them. And the punishment is that that first generation that comes out of Egypt, every single one of them must die before the children of Israel are allowed to enter the land. 
And so, really, the wandering in the wilderness is a death march. It's just a matter of all of them have to die before they can go in the land. So they're walking around. Of course, we know they walked around for 40 years. Now, just think if you're the last one of that first generation, everybody knows. We can't go to the promised land until that person's dead. <laughs> you might have to watch your back there a little bit. But that's how Numbers fits in. Numbers is, is going to fit in from uh, the children of Israel at Mount Sinai until they uh, enter, enter the land. And now we come to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. And uh, Deuteronomy is really the instructions for the second generation uh, getting ready to enter the land. And uh, you, can, you can see the outline of the book there. There's nothing amazing about that. They go over the law. Moses tells them about the law. So they're at the brink of going into the land. Moses reviews the law, reviews the history of their people. And then he goes into the blessings and cursings. And he says, if you do this, God will bless you. If you do this, you'll be cursed. And God will remove his blessings. And so there, in that blessing and cursing, they were very physical. It was a lot had a lot to do with the blessing of the land. And then we have the retirement of Moses. That's, this is when Moses dies. So Moses is not allowed to enter the land. Anybody remember why Moses is not allowed to enter the land? Back in Numbers, back in the book of Numbers, Moses was the leader of a bunch of grouchy, grumpy people. And God told Moses, go speak to the rock and it will provide water. And the people were just complaining and grumpy. And he got mad and upset and frustrated. And he hit the rock instead of speaking to it. And because he did not obey God exactly, he was not allowed to enter into the promise. He was allowed to look over and see it, but he was not allowed to enter it. By the way, that is a, a lesson for us. When God writes his word to us, we can't just make it say whatever we want to say. We can't say, well, it kind of says this. Precise instructions for precise obedience. And when we don't do that, there's a consequence. So uh, in chapter 28, verses 1 through 6, it gives us sort of a, the blessings, the blessings that are, are coming uh, to the children of Israel. That's why I just point that out. Then in chapter 34, verse 9, it says this. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him as did, and did as the Lord had commanded uh, Moses. So uh, Joshua now, I, I give you that because now Joshua is going to receive the mantle of leadership that had been on Moses is now going to be on him. So when we come to the end of the, of the book of Deuteronomy, the children of Israel are just about to enter the promised land. Uh, now we're going to move to the historical books. So this is Joshua. And the theme of Joshua is the conquest of Canaan. Uh, this is 
the, the conquering of the promised land. Remember, there were people who were living in the promised land at the time. And so they had to be removed before the children of Israel could take possession of it. And so really what we have in the book of Joshua is a military campaign. That's what it is. It's, it's a military campaign. In fact, uh, I, I have been told, I don't, I don't know this for sure, but it, I, I do know at one time, I don't know if they still did it to, do it today, but one of the military schools in the United States military um, studied the book of Joshua to study that military campaign. They would study Joshua and they would study Nehemiah to study about military tactics. And so this is a military campaign. And the first thing that happens is, of course, the crossing of the Jordan. Of course, they got to cross the Jordan, they got to cross on dry ground, and then they run into Jericho. And so we got the, the account of the walls of Jericho. And uh, as the children of Israel then come into the land, they start their conquest of the land, and they go from the south up to the north. And once they have done that, now all the tribes are scattered into their tribal areas. All the land is delineated and uh, defined. Now, I think probably the key verses in this book, or at least very important verses, are uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. It says this, Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now that was to Joshua, but it was in a way, to the children of Israel, since Joshua was their, their leader. And so uh, the book of Joshua is recording how the children of Israel entered into the promised land, but it also records a failure of the children of Israel to totally conquer every part of that promised land. There were still people that they did not conquer who were remaining in the land and will remain in the land. They will never actually be um, removed from the land. By the way, sometimes people question, um, they bring God's character into question because they say, well, in the book of Joshua, God tells them to kill all these people, women and children. And the thing that is never brought up in conversations like that is these people are not innocent. In the book of Joshua, it tells us that these people have defiled the land. And remember, this land 
promised land is special land. It is very special. God has sanctified that land. And it doesn't matter that it's not Jews that are living there. Whoever lives there and defiles the land comes into judgment. And so these pagans who were there, they are suffering the judgment of defiling God's land. And we also need to remember that, you know, in the story of Jericho, what did Rahab say to the spies? We've heard about you guys. We have heard about you guys, how God has brought you out of Egypt. So it's not as if these people didn't know. Here comes the Jews. Their God fights for them, and they never lose. We should get out while the getting's good. But they didn't. They stayed. Um, but that's what the book of Joshua tells us. Now, the book of Judges. Uh, the book of Judges records for us that time from the leadership of Moses and Joshua, the nation under one leader. It records that time that is between uh, Moses and Joshua until the time of the kings. Time of the kings. So the theme here is Israel's apostasy and God's mercy. And we see this most clearly in the cycles of the history of Israel, where they will sin, and then God sends an oppressor uh, to Israel to oppress them, to turn them back to him. And so there's that servitude. And then the children of Israel go to God in supplication and prayer and cry out to God and say, deliver us, deliver us. And then God sends salvation. He sends a deliverer in the form of the judges. And the judges come and they rally the people and they defeat their oppressors. And then you'll have a period of silence. And that silence is the time period where the children of Israel digress, digress, more, and they sin. And there's a big circle. This is a cycle that we see repeated over and over in the book of Judges. The people sin, they go into servitude, then they cry out to God in supplication, God sends salvation, and then there is silence. So there's about 13 judges that are mentioned in the book of Judges. The last judge is Solomon. And uh, roughly speaking, you can see through the book of Judges that things don't get better. Things tend to go downhill and things tend to get worse and worse and worse. And it's, and it's quite possible that Solomon, not Solomon, Samson, Samson, he's my man, Samson. Um, it's quite possible that he was the worst judge Israel ever had. But, but the book of Judges fills into the gap. It tells us how was Israel ruled between uh, Joshua and King Saul. How was it ruled? It was ruled by these judges. And these judges weren't national judges. For the most part, they were regional judges, occasional judges. Uh, they were judges because there was a reason that they were needed. And uh, right after the book of Judges comes the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth, is, she sets 
sort of the, the foil to the children of Israel. She's kind of the opposite of the children of Israel because Ruth was not a Jew, right? So she's a Gentile. Ruth is a Gentile. But what we see in the book of Ruth is that Ruth, this Gentile, was behaving how God wanted the children of Israel to behave. So she was doing everything that the children of Israel were doing. And the biggest, the biggest key or thing to take away from the book of Ruth is in the last chapter, this is the key verse, verse 18 through 22, or the key passage. This is what it says. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez, who was a son of Judah, son of, uh, so Jacob um, was the father of Judah. So, so Perez is the son of Judah. This would be Jacob's grandson. Um, to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Amenadab, and to Amenadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz. Now in the book of Ruth, who is Boaz? Husband of Ruth, the husband of Ruth. And to Boaz, and Ruth was born Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David, David. And so King David. Now, uh, when Ruth, obviously, when Ruth is around, David is not around. You know, the events of the book of Ruth are recorded well before David was born. But this shows the importance of how Ruth fills the lineage of David. And that becomes even more important as we get to the New Testament and we see in Matthew, when we have the genealogy of Jesus, talks about Jesus being the son of Abraham, the son of David. So Ruth is in some, you know, how many great, 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 greats, I don't know, but he, she is a grandmother of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's important for us to uh, recognize with Ruth. But she fits, Ruth, the, the, the book of Ruth fits into the same time period as the Judges. Uh, Ruth happens during the period of the Judges. Now we're going to move to 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now 1st and 2nd Samuel, we group them together because the only reason they're separated is because of the length of scrolls. Okay, so when you think of 1st and 2nd Samuel, it's not two different accounts. It's one account that they had to cut in half because to put the whole thing on a scroll would mean you couldn't use it. It was to be too big to use. And so we have 1st and 2nd Samuel. And so uh, what we find here is that the theme is the establishment of the Davidic kingdom. So we are coming out of the judges. By the way, who is the last judge? Hmm, going to stump everybody. This is a trick question. Who's the last judge? What? Samuel. So our man Samuel, that's in the first part of the first of first Samuel, he is the last judge. 
Um, Samson was the last judge recorded in the book of Judges, but Samuel is a judge. And so we have uh, Samuel, who is a young man at the beginning of this book. And what we see as we look at the beginning of this book is that the nation has fallen into wickedness. Everybody in the nation is acting wickedly, especially the priesthood. Eli and his sons are very uh, wicked. They're, they're, uh, Eli just loses total control over uh, his sons. And because of that, this is when the children of Israel say, we want a king. We want a king. Now, is there anything wrong with the children of Israel wanting a ruler? Well, they, already, they were supposed to already have one. So it's not, it's not a question or not an issue of whether it's right or wrong for them to want a ruler. The problem is they wanted a ruler to be like all the other nations around them. Now, one thing that we know that God has called Israel to is to be a particular people, a people that are different. Like some of the laws that God gives the children of Israel, like you can't mix certain threads together in fabric, you can't eat certain things. Why does he tell them you can't eat certain things? Nothing unhealthy about eating pigs, okay? There's no special health benefit to not eating pigs. The only thing that not eating pigs does, it probably makes you a little bit more depressed and grumpy. Because if you eat bacon, bacon makes everything better, okay? So there's no real health benefit. What the benefit is, is it means everybody looks at the children of Israel, the Jews, and says, they're different. They're different. Why are they doing that? So it was really an evangelistic tool, uh, so to speak. So the children of Israel, though, they want a king like everybody else. And so God answers that prayer request. <laughs> it's not really a prayer request. That demand and gives them Saul, uh, King Saul. Now, uh, the key here is when they ask for a king, when they ask for a king, it wasn't simply requesting a leader for the nation. In uh, chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, it says this. That all the elders of Israel have gathered together, it says in verse 5, And they said to him, Behold, you, talking to Samuel, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us, to judge us like all the nations. But this thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. And now they set the course for hundreds of years of turmoil, trials, and problems because they choose this 
king, and God gives them a king like they want. He gives them a king like all the other nations, an impressive man, tall man, big man. At least he was outwardly. By the way, one of the phrases that appears in 1 Samuel is that man looks on the appearance, but God looks on the heart. So you look on the appearance of Saul, and he's impressive. You look at his heart, and he's not. He's wicked. It's dark. It's sinful. And so God gives them, God gives them what they want. And so we have 1 Samuel that goes through the reign of Saul and begins the reign of David. Uh, and David, uh, the reign of David is really covered in 2 Samuel. And we don't course have time to go into all the accounts of David and his uh, running from Saul, his ruling all the way back to uh, Goliath and all that. We don't have time to do that. All that's in here. All that's in here. But this is when, so this is going to be in the, um, about the 11th and 10th century BC is when this happens. Okay. Now we come to first and second Kings. Now, after we get done this study, and we get into September, we're going to study First and Second Kings in particular. Okay, and uh, so there's a, a tremendous amount there, but you can see a, a basic outline of what happens in First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings is just like First and Second Samuel; it's really one account that we split into two pieces. Uh, the theme here is the nation follows the king. The nation follows the king. So how the king goes is how the nation is going to go. There's, there's not really a key verse here, but there is a key phrase. And it's, the key phrase is mentioned in two different ways. Uh, the one way the, the phrase goes, it says this, And the king did evil in the sight of God. The other way the phrase goes is the king did right in the sight of God. So that's how you judge. Is this a good king or is this a bad king? You judge it by that phrase right there. But there's also another interesting phrase that comes in in 1 and 2 Kings. And it talks about the king making the people do wicked. Making the people do wicked. And that simply means the king is leading them into wickedness. And so uh, 1 and 2 Kings goes from the time of David. First Kings begins with David dying. Then it covers Solomon's reign. And Solomon's not given much attention. Uh, I mean, he, he reigns for 40 years, but there's not much said about Solomon. The key things that's said about Solomon are he builds a temple for the Lord, and that takes up a, a, a good number of verses. He builds his own house, he has a tremendous growing kingdom. He has a lot of power and influence. He's the wisest man ever. Okay, think about that. Up to that point in time, nobody was wiser than Solomon. From Solomon's time till now, nobody was wiser than Solomon. Solomon's life ends with him turning from the Lord. That's how Solomon ends. He's not walking in fellowship with the Lord. And the only reason that he is not removed as king 
It's because of God's promise to David. If God had not made that promise to David, God would have removed Solomon as king because of his wickedness. So that's uh, first and second king, or first kings. You get into second kings and you get into the divided kingdom where the kingdom of Israel now splits to north and south. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And they will remain separated for the rest of Old Testament history. Two separate kingdoms. And, and you see the kings in each of these kingdoms. The northern kingdom comes to an end in 722 B.C. with the Assyrian Empire conquering them. The southern kingdom comes to an end in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar for the third time comes to the land of Israel and destroys the temple and Jerusalem levels it, utterly destroys it. And the nation of Judah is taken into Babylonian captivity, a captivity that they have to be in for 70 years because they have missed the year of Jubilee for 490 years. So for every year of Jubilee they miss is a year of captivity. So that's First and Second Kings. It covers the rest of the history of Israel as a nation from the time of David's reign till when they ceased to be an independent political entity. Uh, the book of Chronicles is, it's called the book of Chronicles, and it sounds like, well, this might be a chronicle of history, and it does contain history, but it's nothing new. It's nothing new. The book of Chronicles covers the same territory as 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. And actually it has a, has a, goes back a little bit before because you see there in your notes on your handout, uh, point number one, genealogies. It covers the genealogies of Adam to the 12 tribes. And uh, this, is, this is important because what is being established here with the book of Chronicles as how God has been faithful to Israel from Adam all the way to the Babylonian captivity. Most importantly, it records the Davidic dynasty. Okay, that's super important. Huge emphasis on who is a son of David. Very important because David's throne is forever. So if, if someone's going to rule on the throne of the, of the nation of Israel over all the Jews, they have to be a son of David. They have to be related to David, not a, not a literal son, but you know, a relative of, of David. And so we see God's faithfulness. He has made a covenant with the people, and he's going to be faithful to that covenant. Uh, God's faithfulness is even seen in his punishment of the children of Israel. Because he says to the children of Israel, if you don't repent, I'm going to punish you. Now, we all know, if you say to a kid, we got several kids here, so they know, they can answer this question. What happens when you tell a kid, if you do that, I'm going to punish you, and then you don't do it? They keep doing it, and they do more because they're going to push you, push you. So if you say, 
if you do this, I'm going to punish you, then you don't punish them, you're not being faithful. God said, I'm going to punish you if you don't turn back to me, and they didn't turn back to him, and so he punished them. He punished them with the Assyrian uh, captivity and the Babylonian captivity. So this, this is first through Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, it's really just one book again, divided into. This, this is probably the last book that was written in the New Testament. Just because what it says at the end has to be written by someone who was at the end, right? Um, so this was probably the last one. And um, it's a little bit more, it's not just recording history for us. It's given us some other insights that, that seem like they're thinking about what's all this mean a little bit more. So that's First and Second Chronicles. Then, then comes uh, the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra. So the theme of Ezra is return to temple worship. We need to return to temple worship. And so we, we see that the children of Israel who have been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years are now coming back to the land. And so we went through first and second kings. We went through David. We went through Solomon. We went through the divided kingdom, the Assyrian captivity of, of Israel, the northern kingdom, the Babylonian captivity of the, of the kingdom of Judah in the southern kingdom the land is desolate and empty. The Jews have been taken to Babylon uh, as captives. Ezra records for us what happens after that 70 years of captivity is over and they're returning back to the land. So they're going to return to rebuild the temple and then there is a spiritual reformation that we find as well. And really, to get a good grip on Ezra, you not only need to know biblical history, you also need to know the history of um, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. And actually, for First and Second Kings, knowing all, to know all that, all of a sudden, you go from watching First and Second Kings in black and white to seeing it in high definition. Because it, it explains so much when you have a background in those other um, people groups. We'll probably look at a little bit about that um, when we go through First and Second Kings. Just to, I won't go in First and Second. When we do the study of First and Second Kings, I'm not going to go into too much detail. But I will tell you about the people who are mentioned and maybe the people that come before and come after them because they're important to understand. You know, Snackerib, Tiglath, Pileser, Pull. Who are these people? Evil, Marduk. You know, who, who, what are, what's the deal with all these people? Where do they fit in to history? So to understand that means you understand what's happening within Israel. Why is Hezekiah so timid about Sennacherib? the Assyrian. Well, there's a good reason to be timid. Okay, He's an Assyrian, and he just conquered the world. <laughs> so anyway, back to Ezra. 
Uh, so Ezra is, is really occurring right after or just about when the Babylonian captivity is, is going to end. And along with Ezra, we have Nehemiah. Now, some, some Old Testament um, manuscripts have Ezra and Nehemiah together. They're one book. Okay? Some don't. Some separate them. But at, at one point in time, somebody collected them and put them together. So they're, they're very closely related. It covers the same period of time, but Nehemiah comes in. Ezra was a scribe and a priest. Nehemiah is a uh, Persian, I mean, he's a Jew, but he's a Persian diplomat, uh, bureaucrat. He works for the Persian government. He's the cupbearer. So the cupbearer to the king is not just someone who eats his food and drinks his drink before the king does. So of all the people in the country, who would be the one person that the king would have to trust more than anyone else. The guy who's testing his food to make sure it's not poisoned. So we think it, we might think of the cupbearer as the servant or the waiter for the king. That is not the case. He is extremely high in the Persian uh, government, and that's reflected in the fact that when the king, when Nehemiah has something wrong with him, something on his mind, and the king of Persia asks him, what's the problem? He tells him, and the king of Persia says, you got it, take it all. Just tell me, when are you coming back? <laughs> That's his only question. So when are you coming back? So you have uh, Nehemiah here, and the focus is going to be rebuilding the walls to rebuild the city. Re you got to rebuild the walls. If you rebuild the city without the walls, it's a no-go. You're getting things backwards. The walls have to be rebuilt first. And then there's a huge section in Nehemiah on rebuilding the people, rebuilding the spiritual foundation of the people. Uh, Ezra is also mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. So these two books are closely related. Then we have Esther. Esther also happens in this time, the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah cover a huge uh, space of time, but Esther occurs in that very same setting in the Persian court. So... Ezra and Nehemiah, for the most part, are taking place in Israel. Esther takes place in the Persian court. Um, the, the capital of Persia just went out of my mind. can't remember what it was. No, they're Persia. They're Persia, not Assyrian. That's why you got to know the history. Goes Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Medo-Persia. Assyria, Babylon, Persia. Think Daniel's image, the image of Daniel. Okay? If you can go through that, you got your history. That's the, the sequence anyway. Um, so uh, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. Remember uh, also... The handwriting on the wall in the book of Daniel. That night, the Persians conquered Babylon. Cyrus the Great is there. So he's, one, he's the first Persian uh, 
well, he's the first king of the Persian Empire, world empire. No, no, no. So all these, I'll answer that question in five minutes. But I'm keep, go to, when Persia, con, uh, 539, Persia conquered, wait, wait, don't write down in Esther 539. That's, you don't want to write that. Persia conquers Babylon in 539. Okay. This is happening in the 5th century B.C., so 4-something, you know, 450 B.C. But, um, I mean, there's, we can be more specific about it, but we're not going to do that here. So let me, and I'll come back to, I'll talk as soon as we uh, accomplish what we accomplished, then I'll say more about the history issue, Okay. But I want to keep moving here. So then we have the wisdom books. So we've come through the law. We've come through the historical books. And now we're coming to the uh, wisdom books or the wisdom literature. And the first one is Job. And the theme of Job is God is God. I am not. God is God. You are not. Okay. Um, And you can see the outline. And that just walks you right through. how the flow of Job goes. Um, The key verse in the book of Job is going to be in chapter 1, verse 21, which says, and, and he, that's Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Here, here's the key, key phrase. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So that's the key verse. The problem, the problem with Job is he forgets all about that from this verse until you get to the last chapter. In between, he kind of has a lapse uh, there. And, uh, but we can, we can talk about that some other time. So the book of Job occurs during what we call the patriarchal period. So this is the same period that Abraham was alive on the earth. So roughly that same period is the, the period uh, for Job. And, and so this goes way back, and it's giving us time, a timeless principle. And here's some of the things it tells us. We don't always understand what God is doing. Okay, It tells us that. God has not revealed to us everything that he's doing. Second thing it tells us is that bad things uh, don't necessarily happen to us because of our personal sin. Okay, So uh, just because you're suffering something bad doesn't mean it's because you have sinned in some way. The third thing it tells us is... No matter if we're suffering or not, we have, a, we have a choice to respond properly in the midst of trials. We have a choice to respond uh, properly. But in the end, God is God and we are not. Uh, God is God alone and while his purpose is not always understandable, while his ways are not always understandable, his ways are always sound and sure and for our good. For our good. 
Well, let me, let me do Psalm. Real Psalms real quick. So, Book of Psalms written by several different people over a long, long span of time. So you have some, uh, I think they're attributed to Moses. Many are attributed to David. Some are attributed to the, the sons of Asaph. And it's music. This is the Israel's hymn book. That's what it is. It's, it's a music book. And the key thing here is praise. They're praising, uh, they're praising the Lord. And, and it just, it, you can't really set this book in anywhere chronologically in the Old Testament. It covers such a huge part of the Old Testament. And um, Psalms are theologically uh, rich. They teach us about God ourselves and how we should relate to God. Uh, the, the Psalms use, but they don't require instruments. In other words, you, they can be a cappella or with instruments. Uh, accompaniment. The, the key thing that the Psalms are indicating to us is the use of our voice in praising God. At, our music, our voice is the main instrument. Not the piano, not the organ, not anything else. It is our voice. The other thing that the Psalms uh, teach us is that these, these psalms were written to be sung corporately. Now, you can sing them individually. There's nothing wrong with that. But they're intended to be sung corporately. And um, psalms also teach us that it is the words that are the thing that matters, not necessarily the exact notation. It's the vocalization that is the key, the words uh, that you say. And so we have the... We have the book of Psalms. And that's all we have time for this evening. So we're going to pick up with Proverbs. So mark that in your notes next time we meet. So that'll be next Thursday evening, the book of Proverbs, right here in our notes. Okay, so uh, that ends our lesson. So you can shut us down. But before, before we drop our live stream, I'm going to talk about this history issue. Okay, so you can stay tuned in if you want or um, just shut us, turn us off, turn your computer off. <laughs> so the history, the history issue that we need to wrap our minds around when it comes to the Old Testament is that you have these world empires that are talked about in the Old Testament. These world empires, at one time or another, were just regional kingdoms. So you have Egypt, right? Egypt and Exodus. At that time, Egypt was a world empire. Okay, it, it was the world empire. But when you hear Egypt talked about in the Book of Kings, uh, first or second kings or in the prophets especially in related relation to Babylon Egypt is no longer the world power they have uh, they have weakened in the world and so they're, they're no longer the world empire um, so you have Egypt uh, before Egypt and also at the same time of Egypt you have the Sumerian 
Empire. And that's over there, roughly on the border between Iraq and Iran, right in that general area, we have the uh, Sumerians. Not the Samaritans, the Sumerians. And out, out of that area, uh, at which is going to, we know, as the Fertile Crescent between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, right around there, um, and, and to what is now Iran in that area, there's just a lot of empires, kingdoms that have developed. And so, uh, really, outside of Egypt, the next most, well, of course, you had the Philistines, right? David and the Philistines. The Philistines. Uh, they would, I don't know if we would say they were a world empire, but they were certainly a very powerful kingdom. Way more powerful than Israel. Way more advanced than the Jews. The Jews were a bunch of Neanderthals compared to the Philistines. Now, we use, the, we use that term in the exact opposite way, don't we? When you talk about somebody who's unsophisticated, who's uncultured, who's rude, crude, and obnoxious, you call them what? Philistine. Well, we don't do that anymore, but um, we used to call them Philistines back before we were politically correct. <laughs> but they were an advanced culture, way more advanced than the Jews at that time. Um, we, also, we also have happening at that time is the Assyrian culture. Now, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the Assyrian culture, you know the capital of the Assyrian culture? Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital, okay? And Assyria, which is all, that's the north Iraq, northern Iraq. This is not down close to Babylon. This is way up north. Mosul uh, is on the other side of the river. So back in the war on terror, you heard a lot about Mosul. Mosul's on one side of the river. Nineveh's on the other side of the river. Um, so you have Nineveh up there. And so you have these Bible stories that are connected to Nineveh. Um, Jonah, right? Can, can you name another prophet connected to Nineveh? Not yet, but you will be able to when we come next week. Okay, ahead of Nahum. Okay, um, so Nineveh. But this is the Assyrian Empire. And so they're, they're really hitting their pinnacle 722-ish, somewhere around there, that's when uh, the Assyrians conquer um, Israel, northern kingdom of Israel, 722 B.C. Um, that's recorded for us not only in 2 Kings, I believe, uh, but it's also recorded for us in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. Okay. All that's happening at the, book of, at the beginning of the book of Isaiah with Ahaz, um, you know, a sign will be given to you, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. That's all related to what's happening in global um, politics at that time. Okay, and that deals with the Assyrians. Well, and, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm ballparking my dates here because, you know, I'm just close. I'll, I'll be close to it. So I think it is in 609 uh, BC, the Assyrian Empire is on the decline. And there's these pesky southerners, especially this one guy called Nabal Palaster. 
Nabal Pilaster. Now, we don't know much about him other than his son. His son is really, really famous. His son's name is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nabal Pilaster is not strong enough. He's the king of the Babylonians, but he is not strong enough to defeat the Assyrians, even in the Assyrians' weakened state. So he forms an alliance with the Medes. Now, the Medes are way up north, way up north to the northeast of Nineveh of, of Assyria. And he forms an alliance with them, and the Medes come from the Medes come from this direction, the Babylonians come from this direction. And I, I believe it's 609 that they conquer Nineveh. And now the Assyrian government is on the run. And, and their running days ends in Carchemish, which is over right, I believe it's in Syria. It's right that Turkey, Syria, Iraq, it's all right there together. It's right up there, and that's going to be like 606 B.C., where they're done. They're done. Now, leading up to that particular battle, Egypt shows up on the scene again. But Egypt is not a world empire. They're just a regional empire. Um, but the Assyrians say, help. And so the Assyrians come running. But the Babylonians have a friend that's in the way of the Egyptians getting to the Assyrians in Carchemish. You know who that is? King Josiah. The King Josiah. Israel, uh, Judah, the King of Judah, Josiah. And um, King Josiah goes out to the Valley of Megiddo to stop Pharaoh Necho II. And Pharaoh Necho II kills Josiah. Josiah the king is killed, trying to stop the Egyptians from going to battle against the Babylonians. And so the Egyptians get up there, it doesn't matter, the Babylonians wipe them all out, kill them all. You know, they, they defeat them. And so, so uh, again, think about this on the map of the Middle East. Again, you have Babylon here, Nineveh up here, Carchemish is over here. Egypt is over here. What's right here? Israel. What's on Nebuchadnezzar's way from Carchemish to Egypt? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So that's where he goes. And, and who does he pick up when he gets to Jerusalem? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. First deportation, 606-605 B.C. He goes away for a while. The Jews start to act up again. He comes back in uh, 597, and he takes another group out. This is uh, not the peasants, but more of the working class. This includes uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel's taken. Then time goes by, and then... Uh, I want to say Zechariah, King Zechariah. He's the king at the time. They run through a bunch of kings there towards the end. But in 586, Nebuchadnezzar's got to come back. And that's when he destroys Jerusalem and the temple. And he takes the king and uh, kills him. And 
Israel's just left desolate, and, and they take everybody out. And that's Jeremiah's related to that. Jeremiah has been telling the people of, of Israel, take the judgment of God. God said he was going to judge you if you didn't return to him. You haven't returned to him. God says he's judging you. This is the judgment of God. Take the judgment of God, because as soon as you take the judgment of God, uh, restoration and refreshing will come. Take the judgment. Stay here. Do not flee. And what happens is a bunch of Jews kidnap Jeremiah and they flee to Egypt. They take him to Egypt. Now, Daniel's in his office in the White House of Babylon, ruling his, whatever he's in charge of, a great deal he's in charge of. During this whole time here of this uh, episode of Babylon destroying Israel and after that so he's gaining in his authority and power and uh, so Daniel is part of the government of the ruling government under Babylon and Persia. Um, he was sort of in semi-retirement uh, I can't remember the chapter but the handwriting on the wall chapter where Belshazzar is throwing, right? Belshazzar, Belshazzar, one of those. One's Daniel's name, the other one's the name of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son. Who is supposed to be, not Nebuchadnezzar's son, his grandson. So Nebuchadnezzar, or uh, Belshazzar is supposed to be ruling in Babylon, but he's throwing a big party. And he's letting the, letting the city go. And that is the night. And uh, I have the date exact, it's October something. 539 B.C., where uh, uh, Cyrus the Great conquers Babylon without firing a shot. So it helps to know history. It helps to know the history of the ancient world. And it, and it also helps you wonder why do some nations come to prominence and some nations don't. Well, the reality is as you, as you become powerful, in your own country, you start to expand your empire, and as you expand your empire, you have to go out and fight battles. And if you're out fighting battles as the king, you're not at home. And invariably, some smart aleck thinks they can do a better job than you, and they challenge the power at home. So then the king's got to run back home and take care of that. Well, if the king is home taking care of that, he's not out there fighting people and subjugating people. So they weaken on their borders as he tries to shore up the center. And that's when you have these power shifts. Because sometimes the king is not powerful enough to oppose the, uh, you know, the uh, subversion at home and he gets killed and a new power, somebody comes to power, but they're nowhere near as powerful as the former king. And then you get a turnover of kingdoms, of empires. And so you, you can see all that working out in the Bible. If you, if you know that little sketch of history, you can see all that working out in the Bible. So does that answer your question? All right. <laughs> we'll talk more about that when we get into First and Second Kings because we'll talk about those people who are mentioned. That's all we have time for tonight. If you stayed around for a little bit longer, thanks for staying.